Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and as promised, we're heading east again this week, all the way to Nova Scotia, for a reunion with a chef that I know from the West Coast. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Happy Friday. Thank you, as always, for joining me. And if you're new here, welcome to Chef Demoni. This is a podcast where people share their stories about food. Most of the time, those people are chefs, but sometimes they're food-loving lawyers, too. Lawyers and chefs, those are the groups I know the most of simply because I've worked in both industries. So on Chef Demoni, I try to get stories out of restaurant kitchens and out of some other places, too, and into this show along with some tips to help you improve your own cooking game at home. And today's episode definitely comes with some great stories. My guest today is Chef Shane Robilliard, and he is a friend that I met here on the west coast of Canada. Shane is a chef through and through. He got into the game very young, and he continues to love it, let's just say a few years on now. Today, we dive into Shane's training and his early career and his great good fortune winding up in charge of food and beverage at what sounds like the perfect place to be a chef, Fox Harbor Resort in Nova Scotia. You're going to hear about the many things that Shane and his team grow and harvest and catch and ferment right on the property. You'll hear about the differences between West Coast and East Coast cooking, and you'll hear about a thriving wine industry that's really starting to take off in the province. You're also going to hear the joy in Shane's voice as he talks about cooking. The culinary business is a tough business. It leaves a lot of people stressed or disillusioned or just plain tired. So it was really refreshing to hear just how excited Shane remains about his cooking career. Okay, that is almost it for me and this introduction, except for one last thing. Thank you, Shane, for retaping our interview. I'm so sorry that we had recording trouble the first time around, and I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk again. Let's get to it now. Here's my interview with Chef Shane Robilliard. Well, good morning, Shane, or good afternoon, I suppose I should say, because it's 10 o'clock for me here in Vancouver. I understand it is 2 o'clock where you are in Halifax. Is that right? Yeah, well, just outside of Halifax, but 2 in the afternoon on a beautiful, sunny July day. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, listen, thank you so much for being here. Again, on Chef Demoni, I'm going to say again, because (laughs) (laughs) I I put out a short episode yesterday confessing that the audio from our last effort just didn't come through. So listen, thank you so much for sitting down to to talk to me again. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. It's uh, good to catch up. For sure. Well, I'm trying to think we met years and years ago. I I think I might almost say decades ago uh, through our mutual friend, Stefan, when you were working here in BC at the Chateau Whistler. And I do want to talk about that experience, but let's start a little bit earlier. Let's go back to what inspired you to get into cooking? How did you come to take this on professionally? I'll tell you, I must be one of the luckiest guys around because I completely stumbled on it. Uh, A friend of mine, who's now a firefighter, I might add, uh, was signed up for the one-year cooking program at Malaspina University there. Uh, this is a long time ago. And I thought, oh, well, I'm finished high school. It sounds like a fun time. I went and took that one-year program. Uh, I think the total bill for it was like $1,000, <laughs> which looking back, uh, money well spent. And I haven't looked back for a second since. I fell madly in love with it. 
and I've done nothing but cook and uh, and live food for the last uh, couple of years. <laughs> yeah, one or two or three. Well, <laughs> tell, tell us after Malaspina, what was your cooking experience like in and around BC? And uh, and please touch on Whistler too, because that's where uh, that's sure, what, that's yeah. what I always think of when I think of you. Well, I, I was, again, I was super lucky to have finished school and I got uh, a job working for this crazy little Italian guy named Vincent Stefano. And uh, uh, he opened a little restaurant up in Courtney, which, uh, again, is closer to my hometown up in Campbell River. And uh, he opened this restaurant and we changed the menu every single week for two years. And I mean, the, the entire menu. So the amount of different dishes and different skills that I learned in those two years of apprenticeship were absolutely immense it was just fantastic uh from there uh, i was lucky enough to work for delta hotels for a while which was then gobbled up by fairmont i guess by canadian pacific way back when right uh, yeah. then by uh, the, uh canadian pacific bought fairmont changed the name all kinds of brand stuff and i ended up working for fairmont for just over 10 years so uh the chateau whistler i worked in vancouver arizona San Francisco. I did a, a little help in New York at one point, uh, and that experience was just absolutely amazing for me. Uh, Fairmont Hotels treated me so so well. Wow. Well, I can I can say from personal experience, and I'm thinking back to one night in particular that Fairmont and you treated me very well too, because I was in, <laughs> in Whistler. And I can't remember why I ended up having a solo dinner, but I did. Maybe I was meeting somebody the next day, something like that. But I knew you were cooking at the Wildflower, and you knew I was coming in clearly because when I got seated at my table, it looked like something out of Downton Abbey. There were uh, 10 forks going, stretching away to the left and 10 knives to the right and, I thought, and wine glasses to match. And I thought, wow, this is going to be an experience. And it surely was. And what I loved about that, Beyond the food, which was incredible, was that everybody started looking at this solo guy thinking, <laughs> who is this guy and what's going on? So so many, many years later, thank you for that experience, Shane. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Those, those are the kind of nights where, you know, obviously I didn't have uh, that much going on. I could uh, take the time to, to prepare some lab. But those are the nights where you really get to have fun as a chef. And I always look forward to those the things, you know, you have a guest that comes in and they want a special this or that. You get to create a little bit, and that's what that's what we look forward to in the industry, that's for sure. Right. Can you tell me a, a bit about creativity? And I want to tie this to uh, products, to ingredients, because you've now got experience, a lot of experience, on both coasts of this continent, or I suppose two out of three coasts. And BC, of course, we pride ourselves in the food scene here on everything fresh, local, organic. Um, but maybe just talk about that, both in BC, and then we'll come to where you are now. How important is it as a chef to have access to those sorts of ingredients to stuff that's coming right from the farm right out of the water yeah for sure i mean again you know going back to the, those early days working for vincent uh that was one of the things that he stressed all the time um and you know we have farmers show up the back door constantly you know i've got this this whole lamb that uh that i need to i need somebody to buy and we buy that and butcher the whole lamb or you know the fresh uh, seafood from the from the docks and stuff and so I, I came about it 
wholeheartedly right from the very beginning. And, you know, it, it's it's so easy to do that. It just takes the littlest bit of effort, right? You, you need to sort of put yourself out there. Um, it's also easy if you wanted to, to pick up the phone and order everything from the central supplier and you get a product that's just sort of baseline, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where you know, I, I feel so fortunate. And again, out here, working at the uh, at the resort here, I'm surrounded by these fantastic farmers. We actually have uh, three huge greenhouses right on site here where I have a master horticulturist growing all kinds of stuff for me. Uh, everything from all of our greens are grown on site here to tomatoes, zucchini, cucumbers, you name it. Just a mountain of stuff. Uh, we actually have 30 acres of uh, vineyard on site here where we uh, we grow grapes to make wine on site. I mean, I'm I'm about as spoiled as you could possibly imagine. Um, <laughs> my view right now from my office is the Northumberland Strait, where uh, during lobster season, which is when we last spoke, uh, you know, you watch the lobster boats go out there, get lobster, and they'll the lobster will be in my back door an hour and a half after they get off the boat. Right? I mean. <laughs> Stuff doesn't I doesn't get any fresher than I have access to. It's it's absolutely amazing. No, it sounds just uh, like a paradise. Uh, if we can go before we dive fully into Fox Harbor, which I really want to do. Your early days with sorry was a was it Vincent that you mentioned? Yeah, Vincent. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So how much of that is because I think most people could understand the, the example I always use is pulling a carrot out of the. Uh, out of the mm. dirt in the sunshine, right? Where it's just fresh and almost a bit warm and, and you take a bite and it's utterly unlike a carrot in a grocery store. So I think people can wrap their heads around that general idea. But what always impresses me with chefs, and I'd be curious what you learned, particularly through your early years and maybe with Vincent, is how to match the creativity with practicality. And and by that, I mean, you get a, you know, a boatload of, I don't know what, 20 pounds of razor clams or something. And yep. you, you got to sell those within a pretty short window, right? So what were the skills and maybe even coping mechanisms that you learned for that reality? Well, that, that was part of the whole fun of it. And the flexibility of the style of restaurant that he gave, where, you know, every single week we change the menu. So if if we were talking to uh, the, the farmer down the street and he said, "Hey, listen, uh, I'm going to have half a pig available for next week," uh, we can we can know that okay, you get X number of portions of uh, of pulled pork from that, and you can do uh, roast, and you can do 27 chops or whatever the case may be, and you can plan things around that. You know, it was a, it was a small restaurant, 65 seats. It's so much flexibility and so much opportunity for to create. Um, you know, I, I use those same principles in the operation that we have right now, where you, know, you might build your your base menu off of items that you've got a really steady flow of lobster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> and then uh, everything else around that you you adapt, right? I mean, I have the same sort of program with a, a guy down the road here, and, and I buy one whole lamb from him every week, and. One week we might break it down and, and we might put a special on in the in one of the restaurants with lamb burgers, or we might sous vide the leg for 36 hours and put a special on that way, or take the loin and and do it a different way for a special the following week. I mean, 
yeah, there's so many opportunities and, and so much opportunity for creativity, right? So, and the, the young apprentices just eat that stuff up too, right? It's an always learning, always evolving process where, you know, you just get to, to play, which is, that's, that's what work should be, a little bit of play, right? Absolutely. And I can hear the joy in your voice, which is so nice because I know a lot of people in this industry, particularly these days, are feeling a little, uh, a little worn out, but I'm delighted that you've got a spot that continues to allow that creativity because it sounds like you're, you're excited every day, which is really a nice way to live. I'm, I'm so spoiled, Graham. I can't even tell you. I mean, yeah, there's, there's no question. There's tough days. There's tough days, no matter what you're doing. I'm sure there's, there's tough days in court, right? I mean, but you know, the, the opportunity to, uh, to create, uh, for me at least, and to uh, to see the joy on uh, customers' faces is is pretty wild, pretty amazing. Great. Well, let's get into Fox Harbor now, and please, Shane, give us give us an overview of the place because I haven't been, but I feel like I know it pretty well now, having spoken to you our last <laughs> time. But yeah, please uh, start from from the the origins of the place uh, on up to to the food program. Yes, yeah, so the, our founder uh, Ron Joyce was one of the you know founding partners of Tim Morton's Coffee. Uh, <laughs> he made himself uh, a, a tidy little fortune um, out here in the East Coast and all across Canada. Obviously, uh, when he finally sold to uh, to Wendy's, uh, you know it was worldwide um, and very well known. So he sold back in 2000, and in '99 he had started to create. Uh, Fox Harbor, the resort that it is right now, and why he chose, you know, the, the middle of nowhere, Nova Scotia. The only reason was because it's where he's from, God. and he wanted to give back to the area. He, uh, he grew up in a little town just down the street here called uh, Tatamagush. Um, sounds very East Coast. Give, yeah, <laughs> it's, you know, it's not too far from Muscadabit Harbor, and <laughs> love it. <laughs> so we uh, we're, we're the the fortunate ones that get to uh, live on his legacy. Um, he decided he wanted to give back and he wanted to leave part of his legacy in the area that he grew up in. So we're an 85 room resort, a uh, beautiful championship golf course. Uh, we have uh, a clay shooting, a sport clay shooting course on site here, spa on site and quite a number of homes as well. So it's, it's it literally a little paradise up here. Uh, like I said, I've got three greenhouses with a horticulturist access to anything that I need as far as uh, the food scene goes. Um, and I've, I've got a really, really cool job really as well. So uh, I'm actually the director of food and beverage and the executive chef. So I run both sides of the, of the operation. Right. I'm actually a certified sommelier as well, which is uh, <laughs> so much fun. You know, there's every, everywhere I look in food and beverage, I get to have a little finger in it. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. It sounds like a lot of hours too, because it's a little unusual to, to pair the front of house and the back of house at that level. But but I think I'm right that you did a little front of house work, uh, like you spent some time out of the kitchen in your career as well. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough uh, after leaving Fairmont to uh, to work for a little resort on Vancouver Island called Tynamara. And I was the director of food and beverage there for, for three years. Uh, so it gave me some great, great experience of running the front of house. Uh, and then when I ended up back out, uh, when I ended up out east here, uh, I locked into this role that uh, that sort of encompasses both. Now it's a seasonal resort, so you know I work really hard for seven months, 
And then the other five months, I don't work as hard. We do some Christmas parties and small stuff like that, but it's not nearly as busy as the summertime. So if you were to look at the average executive chef role, um, over the course of a year, uh, work even less than the, the, the average executive <laughs> chef. So okay. I think I'm, I think I make out okay. <laughs> well, it certainly sounds like it. Um, now let's circle back to that lobster because of course I'm sitting here on the West Coast where we have endless wonderful seafood. And, uh, you know, we've just been through spot prawn season, which was incredible uh, as, and very welcome, as it always is. We've got, you know, seasonally, we've got amazing oysters. We've got all sorts of fish. Uh, we've got scallops. You know the scene out here. But what we don't have, what we don't have is lobster. So uh, I think I read somewhere you can get lobster any meal of the day at your resort. So A, is that true? And B, tell me something about the volume of lobster that comes through your place. Well, I, I make a point of, uh, of making it real easy to get lobster anytime you want at the resort. Uh, there's lobster in two different of our breakfast items. Uh, there's lobster everywhere. Because if you come to the East Coast, you come to Nova Scotia, you're going to want to have lobster at some point. And I think I remember uh, us chatting last time we spoke about uh, it was the middle of lobster season. And because of COVID, the lobster prices were actually quite depressed because we couldn't ship lobster anywhere. Right. Everything was shut down. So the poor fishermen were, were getting beat up a little bit on price. And at that time, I was getting lobster for $5 a pound. <laughs> and, and even to me, like, you know, knowing the fishermen, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. None. Yeah. Um, you know, have you, you ever heard of anybody paying $5 a pound for spot prawns? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 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 Not, yeah. not a chance, right? Not a chance. <laughs> and so, you know, we do go through a ton, literally a ton of lobster here. Uh, this year is being uh, a little bit different than previous years with all the effects of COVID and our, our group business drying up a little bit. But, you know, I'll, I'll look back to last year, July and August, we would go through on average about a thousand pounds of lobster a week. Um, so you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 <laughs> to 15,000 pounds over the course of the summer, which is, which is saying something. Which is saying <laughs> quite a bit, no doubt. Uh, the guests must love it. What, what can you tell us about uh, more about, I know the, the greenhouses are there. Uh, tell us more about what you're accessing from your own property, because I think there's, there's some trout involved and there's some grapes involved. What's going on there? Yeah, it's again, it, it, my little utopia up here. So great greenhouse uh, opportunity. Um, obviously with it being seasonal, uh, we, we make the best use of it we can, but um, obviously we can't sustain the entire operation with that. But then on site as well, we have, um, two stocked trout ponds that I go out and fish trout out of, put them on the menu. We use them mostly for fly fishing for our, uh, our guests, one of the activities you can do here on site. Uh, but I get to go out there and uh, and not release them. <laughs> as long as they show up the menu. Right. Catch and serve. And then, exactly, exactly. And then, you know, as I kind of mentioned, we have 30 acres of uh, grapevines. Now, not many people realize that Nova Scotia is a, a wine-producing province, but we actually have quite a... Uh, Quite a blooming wine industry out here. Known a lot more for its whites, and in particular, uh, sparkling wine is being produced out here at a at a very high level. 
Uh, we've got some traditional method sparklings out here that have won gold medals at uh, international competitions. And in particular, a grape variety called Lackady Blanc that's been grown with really good success out here. Uh, now, it's a hybrid variety, so you, you don't hear about it much outside of Nova Scotia, but it's a fantastic high acid, uh, high yield grape that's grown out here. So we, we've we've got a lot of that, and we're in the process of, uh, of producing a non-vintage traditional method sparkling wine. So we've laid some wine down, and we're going to uh, sort of create our own house style, and that'll be uh, available hopefully in 2022. Okay. That's amazing. What is the what is the volume of production of Nova Scotia wine? And, and I'm asking that in part because I, I I don't see it out here, and I guess that's not surprising. But is it is it primarily consumed by the local market and by the restaurants? I would say it's 95 percent local market. Uh, now there's there's a few small exceptions. Everything is very small. So in in general terms, if you look at um, well the the production that's happening right now on Vancouver Island is probably the same as what's happening in Nova Scotia. So there's okay. there's 12 wineries, all quite small. And just to give you a, some perspective, our 30 acre vineyard, uh, the single block 30 acre, is actually the third largest single block vineyard in all, the whole province. So, wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, it, we're not talking about some big scales here, uh, but some really, really good quality. Um, one of the wineries, his name is uh, Benjamin Bridge, uh, was actually picked up by uh, Gordon Ramsay a couple of years ago, and uh, it shows up on two of Gordon Ramsay's restaurant menus over in the UK, which is which is pretty cool. That's very cool. That's amazing. Because what I've always noticed, and as you know from listening to the show, I love going to Vegas and, and taking in the food scene there. And I always sort of chuckle at the wine lists when I flip through them because they'll, you know, they'll bring you a wine list as thick as a big city phone book. And uh, you can always find the Canadian offering, singular, at the very mm-hmm. end in the dessert wines. And it's a little, you know, 375 mil bottle of ice wine for a, for a, wine. For a very yeah. steep price. And that's... To me, that's what the world sees of Canadian wine, and that's kind of sad. So it's great to hear that uh, smaller areas and more niche producers are starting, at least, to get out there. Yeah, I've got a friend uh, who was, for the longest time, the wine director at uh, Robuchon in uh, in the MGM Grand. Okay, yeah. And uh, that was one of his main goals, was to have uh, a few more Canadian wines show up on the list. But it was it was a constant uphill battle, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because until those names start getting out there, until people start tasting and realizing mm-hmm. what's being produced yep. in this country... I think there's going to be a, well, they can make wine in Canada? I didn't know that sort of reaction. Well, and then, you know, the, the honest fact is volume, right? Sure. If you look yeah. at the production of uh, of a giant in uh, the States, like of Gallo, for example, Gallo itself, the one company, produces as much wine as, as Canada, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, right. On, on some level, it's a, it's a plain old numbers game. The scales are a little bit different. You know? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit different, right? And w- what is the timeline to uh, like a, a designation, an appellation designation? Oh, yeah. There's, so Nova Scotia, and this is a, a, a brilliant, uh, brilliant plan by them because, you know, Tourists when and someone would arrive in Nova Scotia, and even the locals would would look at the wine selection and they would compare the seven Seville Blanc, uh, Lacety Blanc, uh, Muscat, New York Muscat, and these aren't necessarily grapes that are are really well known and well marketed. So, what they did about seven years ago, they got together and they decided to put together an Appalachian wine. 
And what that is, is it, it, it is a blend of typical Nova Scotia varietals. Uh, it needs to be at least 75% uh, sorry, uh, Lacadie Blanc. And then from there, you can blend it with whatever you want to create your own house style. It goes off to a tasting panel to meet certain criteria and so on. But, you know, similar to where you would find a, a white Bordeaux, which would be primarily Sauvignon Blanc, and other varieties, uh, we have the same sort of uh, Appalachian wine here. It's called Tidal Bay. And there's 13 different wineries all producing a Tidal Bay. So you get some great um, variety. Uh, some of them are a little bit sweeter. Some of them are a little bit more uh, high acid. Some of them pair better with a, a salmon. Some of them pair better with a, a roast chicken. So it's fantastic to be able to sort of walk through that diversity. And it's got a sort of a common language for everybody to, to talk. Uh, oh, you're having a tidal day. I have, I have an idea of what that is. Right, right. right. It's sort of a, a shorthand or a shortcut mm-hmm. in, into that. Realm. Absolutely. So we produce a Tidal Bay on site here as well. I mean, we only produce enough for the resort itself, and uh, 2019 was its uh, its second vintage. So you know, it's it's a lot of fun. I get to actually be involved with the uh, the blending of it, and uh, know how much Lacadie, how much Muscat, and so on, which is which is again part of the whole joy of being out here. That's for sure. Absolutely, part of the joy of of playing with your food. <laughs> it sounds yeah. like to me. <laughs> I love exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, Shane. Do you notice any uh, differences, big differences, small differences uh, between West Coast culinary scene and, and East Coast culinary scene? And this could be, you know, among chefs. It could be among diners. It could be among attitude toward food. And you know, so much of what we hear today is that you know globalization and social media. We're all becoming similar to every other area, but. I'm not sure that's yet the case. Uh, curious if you've noticed any differences over the years. Well, there's there's no question that in general the the feel of the East Coast culinary scene is just a little bit more laid back. There aren't very many uh, chefs out here that take themselves too seriously. I guess the style of food is a little more relaxed, a little more homegrown, if you will. You know, the the inspirations come from the history of food out here. Uh, whereas, you know, I think of Vancouver in particular, they're gaining a lot of that international, what's happening in Chicago and what's happening in Boston, all that sort of thing. Whereas out here, well, this is what we've always done it. So let's just tweak it a little bit and, uh, and make it a little bit different, a little bit better. They're not looking for those, um, uh, Alinea inspirations. Okay. Right. Right. What's the, what's the home cooking scene like, you know, on a day off, are you getting together with friends and, and cooking, because when I think of my uh, my musical background and playing the bagpipes, what I think of is, <laughs> you know, East Coast, I think kitchen parties, right? Kitchen parties, absolutely. You know, the food scene for the home cook is is, is quite depressed. And, and by that, I mean, for the most part, it's because they have such limited access to quality ingredients. Okay. You know, I'm, I live... You know, in the woods, if you will, uh, it's about an hour away from uh, a, a larger, and by that I mean fifty thousand people um, town, and that's that's where you need to go to get any kind of different ingredients. If you were to have come to the local area, Tadamagush is, is the sort of the town next to the resort here. If you were to have gone there, you know, fifteen years ago, and asked for some prosciutto in the uh, the local store. They probably looked at you sideways. Like, right. What, what, what are you talking, talking about? about? Prosciutto? That's some sort of egg? Or, right. You know, like, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> because they just hadn't been exposed to it. Right. And, uh, you know, you see it 
you see it develop a little bit over time. But, you know, the, the one thing about, uh, you know, Vancouver, I, I think about the one thing with all these little specialty shops you've got, right? Sure, Where yeah. you, need, you need your specialty East Indian food. Well, no problem. There's four different shops to choose from. You can get every East Indian ingredient you've ever hoped for. Uh, you need some Moroccan stuff? Sure, we can get you that too. Whereas, you know, you go to uh, the specialty food store in, <laughs> in <laughs> Truro and, uh, you know, hope to get a version of garam masala that, you know, uh, for your Indian dish, whereas it might not be the garam masala you're really looking for kind of thing, right? So I guess um, the access to quality and, you know, unavailable product is, is challenging. So people eat simply out here, uh, simply put, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and nothing wrong with it. In many ways, it's uh, it can be so comforting, right? I've been I've been working on uh, sort of copycat recipes lately, and one is for this Coney Island sauce from a famous within Thunder Bay uh, little restaurant called McKellar Confectionery, and they they've been around since 1926. You know, my dad went there, and all my friends' dads went there, and their grandfathers. You know, mm-hmm. so it's just been around forever. And they have this Coney Island meat sauce that's just incredibly delicious on these hot dogs. And they're served on steamed white buns, you know, like <laughs> no, like the sort of the lowest um, complexity pastry you could ever want. And it's served with a yep. bog standard wiener, chopped raw onions, mustard, and this meat sauce. And it tastes divine. Yeah, and, no question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And lately, I've made that a couple of times, and I, I laugh because my friends here that I serve them to go crazy for these things, <laughs> which is which is very, you know, <laughs> nice to nice to hear. But I think, this didn't take me as long as the dinner I made you last week. <laughs> but sometimes that it, simple comfort food is the way to go. Well, I, I think I draw that sort of comparison to a lobster roll, right? Yeah. So out here, you, you can't walk 10 feet without getting a lobster roll from somebody, but the basis of a good lobster roll is four ingredients. And you don't need anything more than four ingredients. Done properly, we've got this lobster that's only been out of the water for a few hours. He's got, a, again, perfect, soft, white roll. <laughs> yes. A little bit of mayonnaise, a little bit of acid, and some seasoning. And it's perfection. Yeah. Right? You right. can't mess with that. <laughs> that's right. Why would you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Shane, what are you seeing in the younger generation? There's, uh, there's the grumpy middle-aged man about to ask you why, <laughs> why kids don't want to work anymore. But are you noticing any differences? Because um, I've talked to other chefs who have some concerns that it's harder and harder to find cooks. And it's harder and harder to find people who are genuinely interested in cooking, at least the way you and I and some of our contemporaries are interested in it. And this may just be a generational difference, but there seems to be more emphasis now on social media and promotion and that kind of thing. And what I tend to hear is that it's harder to find people who are really interested in gutting it out for 12 hours a day for a number of years to to really learn the craft. What are are you seeing there? Well, I I do feel a little bit fortunate in that the positions that I offer here are the ones that people are after on the East Coast. Right, so right. I'll preface that by saying there are some some young students, they'll, they'll take the culinary program and then they're out of the province. They don't want to stick around Nova Scotia. They don't want to be a part of Nova Scotia. They, they want to get out of here, right? Okay. They want to yeah. go off to Toronto or Vancouver or Whistler. And I've sent my, some of my cooks out to these places and that's fine. Mm-hmm, go, sure. spread your wings, do your thing, right? Yeah. But for people that want to stay in Nova Scotia, I'm I'm one of the well, one of the key spots that they want to be. So right. I, I'm a little bit um, uh, insulated, I guess, in in that aspect because 
you know, there aren't a huge laundry list of places that you can work and learn as much as you can at the resort here. So I, I, I get sort of the cream of the crop of people up here. Right. Um, yeah, because so, you're able so to I, offer them that learning opportunity on, on so many different fronts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I get a little bit of the opposite. I get people that come up here and they're, they're really keen. They're super inspired. You know, they're, they're bringing me cookbooks to read and wow. you know, I, I'm, it's 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 great it really is and i actually teach the uh, the apprenticeship program uh of second and third year out here in the off season as well and you know you, you see the difference there when you've got students that come in from different walks of the uh, culinary world and they don't have the experience that you know my cooks do uh or the the opportunities to learn that my cooks do and you know you, you do see a difference in, in that it's it's challenging out there Right. Unless mm-hmm. you've got somebody that's really keen teaching them, inspiring them. I think it, it comes to a lot of it, it comes down to the leadership side of things. Right. I mean, if you've got the right leader in the right place, people will work hard for them. Mm-hmm. They will they'll come back day after day. They'll they'll learn, they'll grow. I mean, we change our menu all the time. So it, the cooks are consistently challenged here. And uh, you know, I I rely on them to be keen and and invested in the operation, that's for sure. That is really, really nice to hear. It's great to hear because um, it's it's a refreshing change from, you know, and there are endless examples of, of young cooks doing amazing things for sure. Um, oh, yeah. But, it's, but yeah. it's, um yeah, I guess, and perhaps in bigger cities, this is another problem that maybe is a little better on the East Coast and, and particularly outside of big cities is that I assume, but tell me if I'm wrong, the cost of living is a little more manageable. So I think of, I have such sympathy for cooks in, you know, Vancouver is the scene I know best, but I think about New York and where, heaven help you, trying to f- afford a half a basement suite on a cook's salary, right? Yeah, and and I can totally empathize with that. I mean, having spent 10 years in Whistler, I mean, Whistler I is not not a rich, uh, a poor man's town. No. Right? So, you know, you can totally see how it would be, um, it would be grinding to, to work so hard and be so inspired, but make zero progress in life, if you will. Right. right so yeah. uh, I can empathize with them for sure. You know, I, I, and again, it goes back to how lucky I am. We have, uh, for those that, you know, come here for, for a single season, uh, I've got dorms that they can stay in here. The rent is ridiculously reasonable. Yeah. You know, they're super comfortable. So it's, it's like going off to college, but making money at the same yes. time, right? <laughs> this sounds good. I, I may be looking at the application page soon. This sounds all right. <laughs> um, just a couple more questions, Shane. And, and this this one loops back to our, our home cooking discussion. And this is a question I love to ask chefs because a lot of um, my listeners are not chefs. They're just interested in the food world. And I think there's so much knowledge within um, professional kitchens that just doesn't come out to the rest of the world. And that's one of my goals on the show is to, is to share that with people. So what would you say to home cooks? What would you tell them that can help improve their own cooking game? Could be a recipe, a technique, a process, whatever. Over to you. Well, the first thing, and, and uh, several other chefs have said this on your page, and I'm going to say it as well. And I, and I, I've, I've, you know, I've practiced this in my brain because I want to make sure I say <laughs> the right things. But so two things is what I would say. If one, Sharp knives. Yeah. Invest. It doesn't, and it doesn't need to be a super expensive sharp knife. It just makes sure your knives are sharp. It, it's it's far more rewarding to cut things 
uh, correctly and precisely than it is to hack at things. <laughs> it, you'll you'll enjoy yourself in the kitchen so much more. And then the the second one is just play, yeah. right? Cook, take take ten minutes and look for a recipe that you haven't done before and play. Online is loaded with wild <laughs> recipes and all kinds of stuff that you can learn and, and try new ingredients and you know have fun in the kitchen that's that's what this is all about you know if you screw something up so what yeah, that's right. <laughs> make, make it next saturday right so uh, you can always order pizza <laughs> go out and play i love it play with your food can you can you tell us what does i assume you guys do staff meal in one or more restaurants, what does that look like at Fox Harbor? Well, you know, the unfortunate thing with uh, with the way the operation sets up for us is, you know, that everything is staggered. So we've got one restaurant that's open all day long, which sort of bleeds right into the start time for the next restaurant. So it's it's honestly not as structured, you know, family family structured <laughs> as I'd love for it to be, um, but you know. Sundays in particular, uh, I always sort of turn it over to one of my apprentices. Uh, I give them an ingredient and say, you know, create something. You know, and I always sort of challenge them a little bit on uh, do something fun. And again, I'm always challenging the cooks to try and play with their food a little bit. This job and this career can be way too taxing to uh, to not have fun with it. Uh, if you're not enjoying yourself, it's going to burn you out real fast. Real quick. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? It's interesting. I just had a flashback to the second interview I ever did on this show, and that was with Josh Crane, who's the chef de cuisine at Bouchon in mm-hmm. Las Vegas. And um, he, he was saying, you know, if you treat this uh, just as a job, uh, it can be really, I'm paraphrasing, but it can be really hard on you. It can be tiring. But if you're in it because you treat it as a craft, then yeah. the doors open up and the world's yours. Yeah, I'll never forget, I guess it was almost two years ago now that Bourdain passed away and yeah. I came into uh I came into the kitchen with it. It was just such a heavy heart and I gathered all the cooks up and I I I gave a fifteen minute sermon on balance <laughs> and on 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 what this what this job should be, which is fun. Right. And those times you let it not be fun. Those are the times that are going to beat you up, chew you up and spit you out. So you got to get back to how can we have fun with this? I love it. I love it. Well, a great place to leave it with uh, an attitude that we can all uh, learn something from and hopefully practice in our own cooking. So, Shane, thank you so much for being on the show. Last question, where best for people to define, follow along with your story and with Fox Harbor? Well, we actually have a little bit of a food blog uh, right on our website, so uh, foxharbor.com. Uh, you can see some of the stuff that we're doing up here. Uh, the ever-evolving menu uh, will be up on the web- website as well. And then, you know, come see us at some point. The East Coast <laughs> is a long ways away, but uh, we we love having people visit out here, that's for sure. Uh, and then if you can find me on Instagram, I'm not on there all that often anymore, but I, I'm on there once in a while. It's just my full name, Shane Bogliard. And, uh, yeah, have some fun with the, with the world. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Jane, thanks so much for being on Chef Demone. Absolutely my pleasure, Graham. I really have to get back to the East Coast. It's been, let's see, about 45 years now, so I suppose it's about time. All to say, Shane, whenever travel becomes possible again, expect a couple of guests to be knocking on your resort door. Thanks again, my friend, for being on the show. 
Oh yes, my plea for ratings, which I make in almost every episode. If you're enjoying Chef-Timony, please do tell a food-loving friend about the show. And please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to Chef-Timony. Hey, you're there now, aren't you? Listening. So please consider leaving a star rating. And if you've got a little more time consider leaving a written review for the show. Doing either or both of those things really does help other people to find Chef Demoni, and I appreciate you considering my request. As always, I love to hear from you, so if you've got a question or a comment for the show, perhaps a topic suggestion, or a chef or a lawyer or somebody else in the food world that you'd like to hear from, please get in touch. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, any of those social media, and you could also just send me an email to Graham at chefdemoni.com. Okay, that's all for this week. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you next time, right here on Chef Demoni. <laughs>